Good morning to all you gardeners out there. You are both consuming water and using water. Stay with me. We'll get to the difference soon. This is Tommy Ray. Welcome to episode three of Water Rights, Laws, Guns, and Money. A city needs an expanding water supply if they want growth. Now, I'm sure some of you won't know growth. I moved to Colorado in 1977 and sort of wish we had closed the gate then. But how many of you listening would have been left out of our beautiful state had the door slammed shut behind me? But we're here to talk about water. Last time we discussed that building reservoirs used to be the main way for a city or a group of cities banded together to create, quote, new water sources. Seemed like a good idea. No sense in letting the spring runoff make its way to the Gulf of Mexico. But environmental regulations have curtailed, if not eliminated, on-stream reservoirs. Off-stream reservoirs should be somewhat easier to get permitted, but still there will be problems. Off-stream reservoirs would not dam a river, but instead take the water to a newly created reservoir off the river. I assume this makes sense, but wanted everyone to understand the difference. We'll talk about several off-stream reservoirs that are taking forever to permit. Proponents of even off-stream reservoirs may eventually give up. Last time we talked about EPA vetoing two forks, a major on-stream reservoirs. Panic subsequently ensued among suburban water utilities. Denver suburbs were now on their own for new raw water supplies. Most didn't even have their own water treatment facilities. They previously relied on Denver water to supply them potable water through what is called a master meter agreement. This means that Denver delivered potable water to that city's borders via a large pipe directly from Denver's treatment plants. That large pipe had one meter. The buying city paid Denver for its water and then distributed that water to its customers through its own pipes, marked it up, and collected water use fees from all its citizens. Now, after the demise of Two Forks, that master meter contract with Denver was not going to get larger. Denver would not cut them off, but also not provide additional, quote, new water. Remember Greg Campbell from the previous episode? He knew cities would need more water. He had a plan. Buy ag water and reallocate that to city use. We formed a company called Kiowa Resources, LLC. It was 1988. We were going to buy a block of agricultural water, really water rights, from farmers in and around Brighton. For you foreigners, Brighton is a city of about 40,000, then about 20,000, located near the Platte River about 30 miles northeast of Denver. This is downstream of Denver. Greg knew the price of most of the agricultural water rights in this area. He knew that if we aggregated them and converted them to municipal use, we should be able to sell them at a profit to one of the suburbs in Denver, or maybe even Denver, 
at a profit. To convert the ag water rights to municipal use, we would have to get approval from the water court. This is a non-trivial process, which will be discussed in a future episode. We would then have to move that water back up to Denver. We could pipe it back to Denver, but it made more sense to, quote, exchange it back to Denver. Okay, maybe makes sense, but what is an exchange? An exchange occurs when water or water rights purchased downstream is moved upstream. In other words, instead of taking the water out where it is currently being used, you can take the same amount of water out of the river upstream. That makes sense. There will be no difference in water flows in the river, except there are. You have lowered the amount of water in the river between the old takeout point downstream and the new one upstream. Okay, who cares about that? Well, any intervening water user. That is, anyone taking water out of the river between the two points. The court system won't allow any such change in operation on the river unless you can demonstrate that you will not harm the intervening users, both the senior users and the junior users, anyone using water from that stretch of the river. Man, this gets complicated in a hurry. How will I know not only who those intervening water users are, but how might I impact them? This is the purview of water engineers. They know how to search the records to learn who the intervening users are, how much water they are using, and their relative seniorities. The water engineers can come back with an answer something on the order of, one, if you buy 5,000 acre feet downstream and you leave it in the river, you can only take out 4,000 acre feet upstream. By leaving 1,000 acre feet that you purchased in the river, there will then be enough water in the intervening section of the river so that those users will get all the water they ever got. The water engineers are essentially saying you will lose 20% of your water to affect an exchange where everyone is protected. Or two, the engineer could come back with an answer that says, no way. There would not be enough water left in the intervening section of the river so that every water right holder was or, or is protected. This would have killed the project. We thought there probably was potential for a permissible exchange. There weren't that many intervening water users and there was quite a bit of flow in the river between the two points. We thought we had a workable project. We needed money to buy the water rights and hire water engineers to evaluate the exchange. We were talking about some significant money, maybe $30 million. Greg and I emptied our pockets and counted our money. I think we had $122 between us. Clearly, we were going to need investors. And $30 million is a lot of money. We were thrown into the arena of putting together business plans, financial budgets, and negotiating with investors on how to split any future profits. And what we thought was a fair split of profits was clearly not what the investors thought. We learned the golden rule. Those who have the gold rule. It's their money, 
they are the ones taking the risk, we would have to find significant investors to put up this money. We can discuss what many investors want in a later episode. It's complicated, but can be done. We got a commitment from an investor starting with $1.5 million and a promise of more money if we could show them we knew what we were doing. We then started the process of buying water from farmers. Denver Water even liked the concept. They were a potential buyer since they could take additional clean water out of the river upstream of Denver and put it into their existing water treatment plants. We ended up spending about $7 million of the investors' money. Well, not spending their money, investing their money. But a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. The Kiowa plan was sound. It could have worked. But about this time, 1991, Wellington Webb was elected mayor of Denver. One of the first things he wanted to do was improve the recreational and scenic amenities that the Platte brought to Denver. Mayor Webb wanted to increase the flow of water through the heart of Denver. This was a good decision for the citizens of Denver, but it gutted our plan. We were going to do just the opposite. Our plan was to take more water out of the Platte just upstream of Denver and replace it with the water we were buying near Brighton. That's the way an exchange works. Another valuable lesson. It's not over till it's over. We ended up selling the water we had purchased to others that needed water further downstream. Downstream users, of course, were not paying the same price for water as we could have gotten for water in the heart of Denver. The investors got their money back, but no stellar returns. Although the Kiowa project failed, it was a crash course in Water Rights 101. I learned a lot from Greg and the Kiowa experience. I learned that it was possible to aggregate a block of water by buying shares in a ditch company. I learned a little about water rights, what water rights engineers do, what water lawyers do, but mainly I learned about consumptive use. Consumptive use is the currency when talking about owning, selling, or moving water. I've hinted at the difference in the introduction to these first three episodes. If you take a shower, you are not consuming water, you are using it. Why? What's the difference? Because really, you are not removing water from the system. If you are drinking coffee, you are removing water from the system entirely. We'll explain that. And if you are watering your garden, some water leaves the system entirely, but about half returns to the stream and is used by downstream diverters. So how do you quantify how much water you're using and how much you are consuming? Think back to our first hypothetical farmer. Farmer Jones was in our first episode. We introduced him as the first diverter of water out of the Pooter in 1865. Remember, he diverted 60 acre feet of water onto his farm. He used the 60 acre feet to flood irrigate roughly 20 acres. Fast forward to today. His farm has been passed down through generations and they are still irrigating that 20 acres with 0.2 CFS of water 
for 150 days every year. His water right has stayed in the family and continues to be used on the farm. Remember that this is the most senior water right on the pooter. The present descendants are old and they had no kids to carry on the farm. They decide to sell. Because their water right is so senior and will produce water year in and year out, even during the worst droughts, it is extremely valuable. In today's market, they might get offered $100,000 per acre foot of consumptive use. Wow, that sounds like $6 million just for the water on that small 20-acre plot. After all, 60-acre feet times 100000 per acre foot, that's equal to $6 million, right? Well, no. When a water right is taken to water court to change to a new use to a new location, the primary function of the water court is to protect downstream users so they suffer no harm, meaning they, the downstream users, continue to get all the water they ever got. That's only fair. When Farmer Jones and his progeny flood irrigated the 20 acres, immediately about half that water ran back into the river. Some percolated into the ground and was taken up into the roots for plant growth. Even some of the percolated water ran through the pores in the dirt and eventually got back to the river, maybe a month later. Some of the water evaporated. Only the water that left the stream system can be moved to another use in another location. A major factor of the amount of water consumed is the type of crop raised. Other factors include humidity, because that affects evaporation, temperature, precipitation, soil types, sunlight hours, and others. Complicated, huh? That's where professional water engineers come into play. They interview the farmer as to historical crops raised. They search weather records and soil types to come up with how much of the farmer's water really left the system. Water that left the system is water that downstream users never had access to and never had an ownership interest in. The consumptive use number generally varies between 0.8 acre feet per irrigated acre and 1.2 acre feet per irrigated acre. A good round number to use is one acre feet per irrigated acre. It's complicated and expensive to determine exactly what the consumptive use is. Water engineers representing opposing parties in water court will argue the exact numbers, but generally are within 5% of each other. Much time is spent in water court coming to an agreement on consumptive use. After all, this is the amount of water that will be transferred and the amount the farmer will be paid for. The farmer has a lot of money riding on the determination of consumptive use. Also, the farmer has to agree not to re-irrigate his 20 acres. The difference between what the farmer has historically diverted and the consumptive use being transferred off his property is left in the stream. 
This difference is referred to as return flows. As long as the return flows make the stream, quote, whole, everyone is happy. Well, should be happy. The downstream users should be happy if they continue to get all the water they ever got. I hope you understand this. It makes good common sense when you think about it. Okay, we need to pause and talk about issues surrounding buying farm water and transferring it to city. The biggest issue, of course, is money. If you're going to buy water from farmers, you've got to know their thinking. In the arid west, water is key to raising crops. The major topic when farmers gather together is always water. I have gone to many farm meetings and listened to their concerns. Sometimes the group would look at me and ask what I was doing. I would reply that we were trying to put together a large enough block of water to interest a city in possibly buying that water. I was always upfront and honest. They would look at me as if I were the devil. But at every meeting I attended, as we were breaking up, farmers would come up to me, grab me by the elbow, and whisper in my ear, how much will you give me for my water? That water is the farmer's 401k plan. They know it. We know it. When you buy a farm, 80% or more of the value of the farm is the value of the water. And those that did not sell back then should be thankful. Water values have skyrocketed in the past five years. I keep thinking surely prices have topped out. But what do I know? They just keep going up. Will water prices continue their meteoric rise? I wish I knew. It probably will because there are no alternative sources of water. But all water rights are not the same and we'll get into reasons in a later episode. You'll want to know actual prices being paid and I'll tell you. But much to understand before getting to pricing. A lot of people are opposed to moving water off the farms. In fact, there's a term for it, buy and dry. This means buying water from the farm, usually buying the whole farm since the real value is the water, and going through all the legal hoops to move that water into a city. The farm would then revert to pasture land or to dry land farming. Of course, as with anything, it's not a simple process to convert an irrigated farm back to dry land. It causes a lot of problems, but it can be done. Should farmers sell their water? It's an individual decision. Consider this situation. A farm family has been working hard for 50 years and decides it's, it's time to sell the farm. There are many reasons the farm family might make this decision. Maybe the kids left the farm for what they consider a better life. Perhaps one has a job with a construction company that moves him around. Maybe one is making a career in the army. Another went off to college, got a degree, and has a good job he doesn't want to walk away from. Maybe the parents simply want to live a simpler life in a smaller home that is closer to doctors, restaurants, stores, and not so hard to take care of. This is their private property, and they should be able to sell it when they want. 
They are a willing seller. Are there willing buyers? You betcha. But who has the money to buy it? You cannot pay $12,000 per acre for an irrigated farm and make it pay. For a 400-acre farm, that's almost $5 million. The only active farms that are making money are the ones that have been inherited. Farms have risen in value so much that a person can no longer buy a farm and pay for it with sales of crops or cattle. And why have these farms risen in value? Because of the water. A farm acquisition as a business won't pencil out. That leaves cities and large industries as willing buyers. But what about the neighbors? Will they complain? Do they have a right to complain? Maybe there are farmers along the same ditch. If the water is moved off a neighbor's farm, will it hurt my adjacent farm? The water court process is set up to protect all users when a change in use of a water right is proposed. Water court is the true gorilla in the water world. We're going to poke a stick at the gorilla later, but for now, let's continue with the buy and dry operation. What's wrong with it? Nothing. It's entirely legal, but there are political costs. Cities and other water users are presently looking for alternatives to buy and dry. Governor Hickenlooper even started a series of roundtable talks. These were, slash are, supposedly attended by all stakeholders to prevent or at least limit buy and dry. Should the state government and others who don't own this private property right insert themselves into a private contract to buy and sell water? They may be doing that. And we need to remember mom and pop who could get a great price and want to retire. Is this hurting them? Lots to talk about, and we'll jump right back into buying dry and a farmer's decision to sell in the next episode. I get too excited and want to discuss 50 issues at the same time. That's the reason for this podcast series, to let you know that water is complicated. Everyone wants it, no one wants to pay for it, and everyone has an opinion and how to go about it. You'll hear my opinions. They are not always politically acceptable, but worth considering. In episode four, we will finish the conversation about a farmer's right to sell his water and where buy and dry is going. Your ears are probably tired. To soothe them, we'll close with what pleases all of us, the sound of a gentle mountain stream. See you next time.